BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, August 12th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing those savings directly to you. To get $50 toward any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. One amazing stat I heard recently was that we're outnumbered 10 to 1 in terms of the number of microbes in our bodies to the number of cells that actually, a uh, number of human cells that exist in our body. Now, Are that we number sure about is, that? yeah, that number's not right. New data seems to indicate that it's more a 50 50 split. There's about 39 trillion uh, microbes in our body and 30 uh, trillion human cells. But it brings up this amazing question. We often talk so much about uh, the human system uh, being the one we look at when it comes to disease and evolution, but we are almost ignoring this whole other ecosystem that exists within us. Uh, and that's why this week I was so excited to talk to Ed Yong. Ed Yong is one of my favorite science writers out there. He's an award-winning science writer who reports for The Atlantic, and he has his first book out called I Contain Multitudes, which is about the amazing partnerships between microbes and animals, uh, both humans and uh, mammals alike, uh, which is now out. And Ed is just brilliant when it comes to talking about this uh, this topic, showcasing so many different ways that these partnerships shape us, mold us, uh, protect us, uh, uh, and affect us, even with disease. And he has a British accent, so that just makes him ultra-believable. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to think he's ultra-believable because I think he's one of the best science writers on the planet. And if you're not following him uh, at The Atlantic and pre, you know on his blog at, for National Geographic and all the other things that he does, you're missing out. But yeah, the British accent doesn't hurt for some reason. And are we just programmed like that because there's David Attenborough 
uh, bacteria that have invaded our systems that have forced us to believe in in British science communicators more. Or maybe it's just that like it's such a unbelievable thing that he talks about, you know, and and it's it's such a such a hard thing for us to imagine that you know we kind of need the 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 narrative voice that uh, tells us exactly how it is. Well, let's just cut straight to that narrative voice. So we're going to take a short break and be back with my interview with Ed Young. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. They've produced an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. This is a one-of-a-kind new hybrid mattress that uses two technologies, a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam, which results in just the right sink, just the right bounce. Plus, there's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. And to give you an idea of just how much less these are selling for, a twin-size mattress is $500 and a king-size mattress is $950. To get $50 towards any one of these obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-America mattresses, Visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Once again, that's casper.com slash inquiringminds, promo code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Audible. With an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by signing up at audible.com slash minds. And Audible has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime, no questions asked. Once again, that's audible.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Magoosh. Magoosh provides online test prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, and Praxis. It can be hard to find the time and money to prepare for standardized tests. Magoosh offers a better solution, affordable and effective test prep that is 100% online. You can log in anytime, anywhere on your computer, tablet, or phone to study when you want, where you want. If you get stuck on a problem or concept, Magoosh offers friendly email help from their team of expert tutors. Magoosh's complete test prep starts at under $100, and they guarantee you'll improve your score or they'll give you your money back. Join the 1.5 million students who have chosen Magoosh. Go to magoosh.com, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com right now and get 20% off with the code MINDS at checkout. Thanks, Magoosh, for supporting Inquiring Minds. Magoosh, prep smart, go far, enjoy the ride. Ed Young, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Good to be here. So I want to start with a something that you mentioned early in the book. The Even though the book's called I Contain Multitudes, you very early on say that I Am Multitudes might be a better title given how microbes interact with us. Can you explain that in some detail for us? Yeah, sure. Um, so obviously we contain um, trillions, like tens of trillions of microbes in our body. They live um, in us and on us. They fill and surround us. 
Um, and we're starting to understand that um, the, these microbes are very important parts of our lives. So they're not just um, stowaways or hitchhikers. They are actually very intimately associated with us and they affect um, almost every aspect of our biology. Um, so they help to sculpt and shape our organs. Um, they steer the path of our development from um, from a single cell to a, a fully functioning adult. Um, they help to train and educate our immune system. They help to digest our food. They um, protect us from disease. Um, it's possible that they may even shape our behavior. And the same is true for humans and for um, all other animals. You know, whether you're talking about a sponge or a squid um, or a hyena or a wasp, um, all these creatures are crucially dependent upon their microbes uh, for everyday aspects of their lives and also for extraordinary abilities like um, like luminescence. Um, so I think the the relationship between um, animals and our microbes goes way beyond just housing or, or hosting them. Um, we are very much plugged into their biology. Uh, and, and I think it's fair to say that to, in, in some ways, they really are part of us. I want to delve into that idea of it sculpting us because that's a new concept that we don't hear very often. We A few weeks ago, we had Carl Zimmer on the show, and he talked about the non-trivial percentage of sort of viral fossils that exist in our DNA, showing their incredible influence on us. And you tell a similar story about how microbes really do sculpt our organs even. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. So um, one of the one of the first really clear examples of this came through work on the bobtail squid. It's a very adorable animal which has glowing bacteria in its undersides. Um, and specifically, it houses one um, particular microbe called Vibrio fisheri. And for some reason, it manages to form an association with this one species out of all the multitudes that live around it in the ocean. Uh, when the squid are very young, uh, Vibrio fisheri colonizes their bodies. It, um, f it goes into these, um, into these light organs on the squid's undersides. And when it reaches the organs, it remodels and changes them, um, so that they reach their adult form and they close off so that other bacteria can't, can't get in. Um, and without them, without Vibrio fisheri being there, um, the light organ never reaches its mature adult state. Um, so this is here is an animal um, that that only really reaches its mature form if it forms this association with this one microbe that it lives in in symbiosis with. And there are many other examples of this. So there are um, a lot of animals like um, like these tube worms and um, H. elegans, um, which only metamorphose into their adult forms um, if they encounter the right bacteria in their environments. So if, if they don't meet those microbial signals, they're, they're sort of like Peter Pan. They're always stuck in larvadom. 
And um, for for creatures like us, for for humans, and and through for um, other common lab animals like zebrafish and mice, we know that uh, microbes steer the development and the growth of many of our diff- many of our organs, and that becomes very clear when you look at germ-free animals that have been reared in sterile environments and have never encountered microbes in their lives. And these animals grow up uh, very differently. So their immune systems are like half formed. Um, their their blo- their bones and their blood vessels don't develop correctly. Their guts are, are very strange. And so many different aspects of their biology um, don't unfold in the correct way if they grow up in the absence of microbes. I want to track back to the squid because it's such a bizarre situation that it won't mature unless that microbe is there. And let's first off the bat get on uh what is the advantage that the squid gets from having the sort of light component to its work? So the idea is that um the microbes help to uh camouflage the squid to turn it invisible. Um so the glow they produce um is meant to perfectly match the moonlight welling down onto the animal so that any predator looking at the squid from below cannot make out its silhouette. So the microbes essentially cancel out the squid's shadow. They they cloak it in this invisibility cloak. And then what advantage do the microbes have? Because they create this perfect environment just for them, and it can only be this one microbe that lives in this area. Right. So it's a really interesting question, and I think one that um, threads throughout this entire topic. What actually is in it for the microbes? And there's some dispute there. I mean, on, on you could argue that um, the the microbes get a nice place to live. They get this. Um, they get these. Uh, this environment. This organ inside the squid's body in which they can thrive and multiply in the absence of any other competition. Um, but one could equally argue that the microbes have been. Um, you know, domesticated is the nice way of putting it. Enslaved is possibly the harsher way of putting it. Um, they, it, it's not really clear what the microbes are, are getting out of this arrangement, but, um, they are, they are clearly part of it. V. Fisheri is the only species that, that is able to make this journey. So there's something that's selecting for them, um, that is making this relationship exclusive. And, you know, the squid also seems to have ways of, of controlling its partnerships so, so that you can get mutant strains of V. fisheri um, that don't produce light. You get these dark mutants. Uh, and somehow the squid is able to sense the presence of dark mutants and evict them from its body. So it's only the light producing strains that get to uh, that get to live within its uh, light organ. It's a weird form of mating. And, and you track this concept up through humans. How common is this? So I think it's fair to say that bacteria affect um, the development of animals across the animal kingdom. It seems to be a common theme. Um, Now, the degree to which that happens almost certainly varies from species to species. So like I said, there are um, some worms and a lot of marine larvae that require a a microbial cue or the presence of certain microbes to transform into their adult state. And then there are lots of other animals, um, ourselves included, which are 
kind of negotiating with our microbes throughout our entire lives. We we live our lives in conversation with them. Um, so they produce um, metabolites and other chemicals that influence um, our physiology and perhaps our behavior. They um, they send signals that continually calibrate our immune systems, and um, they do seem to to uh, shape the growth of our organs. Um, you know, that's one could argue that that's unclear for humans, but it does seem to be the case in um, the vast majority of the um, lab organisms that we study, whether flies or fish or, or, or mice. We see this impact on of microbes on animal development um, because we see that animals that lack microbes develop in in a very strange um, way. I want to explore that calibration of the immune system because in that arena in the book, you really paint the picture that these are active contributors, not just that they shaped how we developed, but they continue to play an ongoing role as we go on. Can you tell us a few examples of how it's calibrating our immune system? Yeah, sure. So um, we, I think the traditional view of the immune system is uh, is that it is some kind of militaristic defense force that separates self, so us, our cells, our bodies from non-self, microbes and everything else, um, and that it senses and uh, repels and destroys the latter. And obviously, that can't be entirely true because we play host to so many microbes um, that live happily in our bodies. Um, and so I think it's more accurate to suggest that the immune system is um, like a set of rangers uh, patrolling a national park. So their job is to ensure that um, the, the right species get to, to thrive within the park and invaders get repelled. So they're, they're, they're managing a community. Um, but it also seems clear that the the community within the park affects um, the the ranges in the first place. So we see that um, that microbes the microbes in our body um, tune our immune system. So they some of them send inflammatory signals that that ramp up the activity the immune responses in our bodies. Others quench those responses. So it's that balance of pro and anti-inflammatory um, microbes that seem to affect um, how how twitchy and how responsive our immune system is and it allows it to um, respond to to dangerous threats to to potentially harmful infections while also um, stopping it from going berserk at the presence of all these these foreign cells these non-human cells that live with us all the time and you know there's evidence from uh, a lot of different species um, that uh, microbes also influence the development of the immune system in the first place. So the, the the quality of the barriers, the sanctity of the barriers that separate them from um, the bodies of their hosts, the um, the antimicrobial chemicals or, or the antibodies that are produced, maybe even the production and the maturation of immune cells. Um, so they're they're kind of they're very intimately. Associated with the immune system, not just in its creation, but but also it's in its calibration. And then there are people who have shown um, that um, that maybe viruses could be part of the immune system too. Um, we see that um, the mucus that lines our gut. 
um, is full of viruses called bacteriophages um, that infect and and kill um, bacteria, and perhaps these viruses um, play a role in. In controlling the microbiome, in in managing the numbers of microbes that are in our gut, and also perhaps selecting for particular species. I love how eloquently you describe mucus. It made me approach my own mucus in a slightly different way. I appreciate that love you have for what's going on in the mucus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I spoke to uh, spoke to a guy called Forrest Rower, who is I think I think the world's biggest fan of mucus. Uh, he's been collecting mucus samples across the animal kingdom and and is uh, is is very pro mucus. A lot of the work that's cited here, a lot of the scientists you talk are talking to, they're referencing work that's very current in the grand scheme of things. So except for like an early dive in the book into the history uh, that led us to this point, most of the research is the last 20 years, it seemed like. Is that your sense of it too? Uh, yes, yes and no. I think there actually has, there's actually a very long history of microbiome research. Uh, you know, I was reading a book called Life on Man by Theodore Rosebery, um, a very, very eminent microbiologist. Um, and that was written in like the 19, the early 1970s, I think. It, it is very much a predecessor to mine. It is a popular science book about the human microbiome. Um, and it has a lot of insights in it that um, that microbiome science has sort of rediscovered um, in recent years. Um, so in many ways, this is an old field. But I think what's what's new is is the um, is the ability to understand the details of what's going on to to really see just how intimately um, microbes are influencing our lives, and that comes through um, that has come from the technological advances of the past decade or, or two. You know, the tools that allow us to take a random sample um, from an environment, so a swab from the human mouth or, or a, a stool sample. And um, through through analyzing DNA and um, th by cataloging the genes that are present, identifying um, the organisms that also live in that sample. And that ability to, to identify microbes and to study them um, without having first to, to culture them or to, to look at them under a microscope, that has vastly expanded our understanding of the microbiome. Um, and that combined with um, techniques that allow us to, uh, like the, the techniques of molecular biology, to really understand and play around with the cells that make up our bodies and those of other animals. I think that has led to a, a huge renaissance in, the, in our understanding of the microbiome. And I think the fact that this whole area of science has moved from the fringes of biology to its very center is very important. You know, people, people are treating it as, um, as a very exciting field of science. And that has meant that people from very disparate corners of biology are now working together. So you get, um, neuroscientists and, and uh, immunologists, um, entomologists, um, you know, infectious disease specialists, all people from all these very, very different silos are now collaborating and finding that they um, that the systems they're looking at have a lot in common. Um, and that, I think, has been a sort of grand theme of, of research into symbiosis and microbiology since, since its very beginnings. 
beyond bringing a new level of understanding and a new acceleration to the research, a lot of those scientific teams are also bringing renewed interest in manipulation of these microbiome environments, whether to better understand disease or to potentially uh, uh, sh- uh, shape them in some way. Uh, and you touch on that briefly, a couple different projects that are really trying to manipulate the the microbiome of different species in, in some ways. Can you tell us how that is proceeding? Sure. Um, I think the, the, the means that will be most familiar to people, um, will, will be centered around humans. So things like, uh, probiotics, which are products that add beneficial bacteria to the body, um, fecal transplants, which are, are much the same, except you're transplanting an entire community, um, by loading individuals up with the stools of healthy, um, donors. Um, and, uh, then other scientists are trying to do, um, uh, trying to work, are working on measures that are halfway between those extremes of so creating personalized cocktails of carefully defined microbial communities. Um, and that, that applies not just to humans, but to other animals too. There are um, scientists who are trying to save frogs from an apocalyptic killer fungus called BD by swabbing their skins with um, potentially protective microbes. Um, and then there are stories that I think um, people are, are less familiar about, familiar with, um, but that are, are very much tied to this idea of microbiome medicine. Um, for ex- uh, two of my favorites involve a um, bacterium called Warbachia, um, which is one of the most successful bacteria on land because it infects some 40% of species of arthropods, that's insects and spiders and, and the like. It's also found in these nematode worms um, that cause some very debilitating tropical diseases um, like uh, lymphatic filariasis or, or river blindness. And these worms depend on Warbachia for reasons that are still unclear. Um, so scientists are now trying to find drugs that kill the Warbachia in order to destroy the worms. And that this, this approach seems to have um, tremendous promise in, in bringing these tropical diseases to heal. Uh, and meanwhile, there are there are other researchers who are um, looking not to destroy Warbachia, but to add it to animals in order to fight tropical diseases. So one group has been trying to add Warbachia to um, the mosquitoes that spread dengue um, and uh, Zika and chikungunya and, and other important diseases, because it turns out that um, when Warbachia gets in these insects, it stops them from um, transmitting uh, the viruses behind this, these diseases. And not only that, but Warbachia is exceptionally good at spreading um, within a wild population once it gets inside. So the idea is if you release mosquitoes that have Warbachia in their bodies, um, very soon the entire wild population ought to be um, carriers of Warbachia back here and thus unable to spread um, dengue and other diseases. How skeptical are you of technologies like that at this point? Because we've had researchers on recently talking about manipulations of of whole species of uh, mosquitoes uh, to that effect. 
And they're incredibly excited, but there should be some healthy skepticism about the implementation of this, it seems like. Where do you fall on the spectrum? Of course. And, you know, I think... um I, I think uh, skepticism is all is always warranted, but I like the Wolbachia mosquito approach because for several reasons, um, it has a very long history to it. So it has been uh, developed gradually over the course of the last thirty years. Um, the people involved are ecologists and evolutionary biologists at heart. So they are very, very savvy about, um, uh, about trying to understand how mosquitoes behave, how the bacterium will spread in wild population, what might happen if resistance evolves. You know, they have thought very deeply about these problems. Um, they have done, um, very careful stepwise trials to, to, um, test the approach. So small field trials in, in isolated, um, cages that artificially represent, um, you know, uh, hu- like houses and porches and the, the environment in which these mosquitoes might be released. So they checked that it works. They then moved up to small pilot studies, um, in, in small suburbs of Australian towns and they showed that, um, the proportion and mosquitoes in those areas uh, very quickly um, become dominated by Wolbachia once you release a small number of uh, carriers. So it works. They've done mathematical simulations of the spread of these strains. Those are positive too. Then they've moved up to um, larger, uh, larger suburbs, larger towns across the world. Um, and everywhere the mosquitoes have been released, um, Wolbachia seems to take a foothold. And now they're gearing up for much larger trials um, in pilots in, in, in large cities around the world, in Brazil and Colombia and Vietnam. Vietnam. Um, they, you know, they, they've just gone about this, I think, in a very slow and methodical way. And recently, the World Health Organization analyzed the, um, the worth of several different techniques um, for, uh, for controlling mosquito-borne diseases like Zika. And this was one uh, of only a couple um, that was deemed exceptionally promising. So, you know, I think... I think obviously, you know, one should have healthy skepticism. Um, there is an old saying that evolution is cleverer than we are. So any, uh, any method like this, um, is obviously going to, to come up against the specter of resistance over time. Um, but I think that they've done everything they can to, um, to check the method, to make sure that it works. Um, and I think, you know, you have to compare it to what else there is out there. You know, there are on, there are no good um, vaccines. There are barely any good treatments for dengue out there at the moment, um, and we need better ways of, of controlling these diseases. And if you compare the Wolgapaki approach to, um, to say, spraying with insecticides, um, you know, there you you get um, you you're going to get resistance too, and um, it's much more toxic. Uh, it's much more expensive. You need to continuously respray. Whereas the 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 advantages of the Wolbachia idea is that um, are that uh, once you release the insects, they ought to be self perpetuating. So um, they should technically be very cost effective uh, and and very safe. 
As somebody that's allergic to a certain protein mosquito bites, I am excited for the day that we wipe them off the face of this earth, even though that's not a popular opinion, let's just say. Well, I mean, the, the interesting thing about this approach is that it's not actually about killing mosquitoes. It's just about turning them into dead ends for viruses. No, I um, totally get that, but I just want right. them to die because they, cause I'm, <laughs> okay. a, I'm allergic to them. Uh, all right, all right. Where do we go from here? I mean, there's... Uh, the analog for this work, I think that most people use is is what happened with the Human Genome Project, where like there was an acceleration of interest uh, and a combination of technology uh, and economics that led to an incredible advance that we're now starting to see proliferate everywhere. Are we at that point here with the microbiome, where that where we're going to see, you know, a real sort of centralized push to explore this in a, in a richer way. Oh, very much so. I mean, just um, just earlier this year, um, the White House org uh, announced the launch of the National Microbiome Initiative, um, which is a semi-coordinated attempt to really understand the microbiome more deeply. And that's not just the human microbiome, but microbiomes full stop, so of animals and of um oceans and soils. Um, so just really trying to understand microbial communities of the entire planet, wherever they might exist. Um, and, you know, the, the, the idea that we only learned that they existed 350 years ago, and then for most of the, the intervening time, we have either feared or neglected them. Um, the idea that they've gone from that point to one where they are now the subject of uh, a large national presidentially led initiative that's uh, that's astonishing to me um and and i think it it reflects an understanding that microbes are um the the, the driving force of the planet they've been around for um the for the entirety of life on earth um and the majority of life on earth um has been has been entirely microbial um so they are important um they are now becoming fashionable um for the first time in in history um but i think with that also comes hype and i think the the parallel to the the human genome project is a, is a very astute one. I remember be attending a microbiome conference, um, several years ago on the 10th anniversary of the human genome project and the rhetoric around the importance of the human microbiome and its potential for improving our health was very much the same as the rhetoric that was going around when, um, when the human pro genome project was really taking off. And, um, you know, I think it's it's a lesson that we, you know that's a, a a phase of history we should reflect upon, um, because I think there was a lot of back there has been a lot of backlash uh, with the Human Genome Project about um, how uh, a lot of the the health benefits that would uh, that were claimed to. Um, you know, that people were claiming would arise as a result of the project haven't come to pass because biology is much more complicated than, than we often give it credit for. Um, and that's not to say that the genome pro you know, the human genome project was a, was a bad thing. Obviously, it has led to tremendous advances that are, um, that are improving 
our understanding of our own bodies and and will improve our health in the future but i think it's that it's about the the mismatch between the the early hype and the early exaggerated promises and what we can deliver in a given time frame and you know the human the the the, the microbiome field is experiencing i think exactly that you know we're hearing so much about how um, it's going to revolutionize our understanding of everything from um, obesity to diabetes to asthma and allergies to cancer. Um, and, you know, I think that that's true, but I think it will take a very long time. You know, we are still at um, a very early stage. Um, this field of science is, you know, despite its long history, is still in, in its infancy. And there's so much we we don't know. We still don't really have, uh, we can't even identify all the microbes that live in our bodies. We still don't know entirely what drives those communities, what factors make my microbiome different to yours. Um, you know, what, what disrupts them? To what degree are those disruptions important for our health? Um, and then how can we manipulate them um, in the future? After spending so much time with microbes, both inside your own body and in telling the story, you seem to dispel the notion that this they're good or bad. Uh, so how do you how do you want people to experience microbes um, a a after they read this book? I think I'd love people to understand um, that the the natural world that they can see with their own eyes, the animals, the plants, and the people around them, um, that world they can see is deeply influenced by another world um, that they cannot see, which um, is in, which is inside them, which is all around them. Um, I want people to think of themselves as ecosystems, as entire worlds, so that it's every individual um, is is just full of multitudes. It's, it's this multi-species collective um, that we live our lives in partnerships uh, and in symbiosis with um, with thousands of other species. Um, which aren't just sharing our bodies, but also very profoundly influencing our lives. Um, and I think when we understand that, um, the world around us and, and our own, our own lives, our own beings become that much more wondrous. You know, all these aspects of that, of our bodies that we are familiar with, um, you know, everything from, uh, development to immunity to breastfeeding to, um, health and digestion, all of these, um, familiar parts of our biology take on very um, fascinating uh, and and counterintuitive um, new airs if you cons if you view them through a microbial lens um, and and I think when through learning about um, the importance of microbes um, and and the many tendrils of influence that the the microbiome in, insinuates into our lives and the world around us, so I, I've left with I'm left with a much deeper appreciation of of our biology, a much grander view of life, and that's what I hope to um, to be able to convey through to people through I contain multitudes. That's a beautiful sentiment to end on. Ed Young, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Kishore. Sure. 
So I still struggle with this notion, even with all the examples that Ed laid out, that microbes are shaping us as much as he claims. Um, do you buy into that idea? I mean, I think I see where he's coming from. And, you know, just as if taking you know, the food that you eat and if you took a whole bunch of hormones, that can certainly shape the way you feel, the way you behave, the way your body develops, that all seems plausible to me. I mean, after all, if a little hormone can change a body drastically, then why shouldn't an actual other living being, especially if it's if, if you see so much of it. But so I think the thing that kind of makes me wonder or stop when I think about this is that we're told that each of us has a pretty diverse ecosystem with which we share our bodies. And yet I don't see a lot of evidence of that diversity, or maybe I see it, but I don't recognize it as such as pertaining to that. So I think that's where we still kind of have to figure out exactly how this shaping happens uh, with respect to how it actually affects an individual. Does that make any sense? It does. I mean, with uh, respect to what Ed said about the history of this, that we've been studying this for a while, I still do feel like most of the work in this, because there's a lot of new technology being used to sequence this emerging microbiome, is relatively new, is that we don't know a ton about this. So the idea of the diversity even between humans is not well understood. But it tracks back to one thing he said that really stuck with me that I wish I actually poked at more, is that we still don't know what's in it for the microbes oftentimes. Like we get what's in it for the humans that's sort of easier for us to track in a lot of cases or the animals. But what's in it for the microbes outside of, you know, potentially outcompeting other microbes, which is not insignificant. The reason that they do some of this stuff, like the the one microbe that that helps make that one like squid-like thing invisible, essentially, for prey. That's such a bizarre partnership. And imagining how evolution sort of took us to that point is hard to see the sense in that. And maybe that's the beauty here is that evolution just doesn't make sense sometimes. Well, but isn't it just as, so, as simple as to say, look, the microbe that makes the squid invisible will live to re reproduce isn't that i mean isn't isn't that all it is yeah i guess so i find that unsatisfying on some level when we start to uh zoom out to uh to being sets of bacteria when when it's just one individual microbe i get that now when we're talking about a microbiome we're talking about you know millions of different species altogether that's when that breaks down to for me a little bit at least but that's i think the fascinating thing here is that we have this huge area of exploration uh to undergo the treatment side of the equation where we start hearing about you know microbiota treatment whether it's probiotics and otherwise that feels a little snake oily to me in in certain aspects i mean we always hear about fecal transplants and and the like, but um, I think there's a long, long, long way to go on that. And there's reason to be skeptical, but I'm excited about the research. I think when you say we always hear, hear about fecal transplants, you're probably just talking about you and me. <laughs> I don't know if that's yeah, true of the I guess general population. That's the bubble I live in. I'm like, ah, oh, fecal transplants. Actually, Again? there's this there's this moment before we start the show where I was like, Ed, is there anything that you've talked about a lot that you don't really want to talk about and he's like you know the health stuff is uh people are interested in but you know we always hear about fecal transplants and i was like we do 
I'm like, yeah, I guess we do. Like, I like it shows up in my Google search history a little bit more than I care to admit. Well, you know, with a new field like this, too, there is, of course, danger of hyperbole and, and media catching on to things. And I think it's so interesting that that 10 to 1 number, I'm sorry, I'm going to geek out and go back to this at the top of the show, is out there because that number is or that ratio is the same ratio that erroneously talks about glial cells in the brain to neurons. So for a long time, people were like, there are 10 times as many glial cells, support cells in the brain as there are actual neurons. But when we actually counted them, the number was more one-to-one. It was more 50-50. So I don't know. There's just maybe this kind of, in an early part of a particular scientific sub-discipline, does this 10-to-one number have to pop up in order to capture people's attention? Maybe I know how to write a, a future paper to get noticed by the media. I just have to put in that ratio. And there then all of a sudden, it'll get picked up. <laughs> there you go. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. Thank you so much. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 toward any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash inquiringminds. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds produced by our sometimes producer, sometimes ad reader, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.